Welcome, and thank you for downloading the first edition of the Five Reasons Podcast. A bit about this show, we are Chris Whittingham and Ethan Skolnick. We hosted a radio show together for over a year in Miami. And now, we're entering into a terrain where no media personalities go. We're starting our own podcast. That's right, a totally original idea that no one's tried before. The concept for every show is we'll break down a topic in a way that only BuzzFeed can by describing five reasons a sports phenomena is happening. We'll have something of a Miami focus, but later in the week we'll be taping something on the NFL playoffs because how could you not after Viking Saints? Which takes us into our first episode. We go deep on the Miami Heat. We find them really hard to figure out, and we go into the five reasons why. Since we recorded this, three major things have happened. Dion Waiters opted for season-ending ankle surgery. Justice Winslow returned from a double-digit game absence, and Miami played in and won a seventh straight game over the Milwaukee Bucks. So go into this with that in mind. We'll hopefully have subscription links soon, so you can download this thing. You can find that on our social channels. I'm at Chris Whittingham, and Ethan is at Ethan J. Skolnick. But let's go ahead and get into the first episode on the Miami Heat. Welcome to the Five Reasons Podcast, where we take deep dives into various subjects in the sports world. My name is Chris Whittingham. I'm joined by Ethan Skolnick. Now, generally, we will keep a Miami focus on this podcast, because that's where we are based from. That's generally where our interests lie, but we, of course, are bound to take dives around the sports world. Right now, though, we're talking about the Miami Heat winners of six in a row, Ethan, and we're diving into the reasons why they are confounding. Yeah, um, I think the biggest thing right now is that you look at them on paper and you sort of wonder how they are in this position, particularly the way they've played since the all-star break last year. And I think the first thing, you know, you look at, and since the uh, halfway point of last season, this team is 54 and 28. Um, And, you know, that comes after an 11 and 30 start last year. And of course, I just don't think we've seen many teams in recent NBA history that have had that kind of turnaround and then been able to sustain it in some significant way. And so, you know, when this team was bouncing around, you know, at 500 earlier this season, you sort of had some questions about things. But now at this point, uh, they're starting to play the way that they played, you know, in the second half of last year. Right. And I think and we, we can go ahead and dive into reason number one, why this is confounding is that recent results both in terms of they've won six in a row. They, we're, we're taping this on a Thursday following their back-to-back wins in Toronto and Indiana. They've won six in a row. They've won 11 of 14. And as you mentioned, they've won 54 of their last 82 games. So if you're doing kind of an 82-game pace, now again, this is based over multiple seasons, and there have been roster changes, and the league around them has changed as well. But those are sensational statistics. Those are top of the Eastern Conference kind of pace and, and record and you look at the aggregation of talent, if you're doing sort of some of the parts versus, you know, the whole, that doesn't really add up. How are they a 54-win team when you look at, even now, the point differential, the net rating is very mediocre in terms of the entire scope of the league. How, for you, have they done this in terms of really coming together and being a good team when all other indications would have you think the otherwise? Well, I think you have to start with a coach um, and clearly having stability in that spot. And Eric Spolster has coached all kinds of different teams. You know, you take a look at the first two teams that he coached, which were heavily reliant on one star in Dwayne Wade. Uh, then you take a look, you know, both of those teams make the playoffs. I think you look back at those two rosters, particularly the first year's roster. Amazing coaching sort of, so it's Yeah, sort of wonder how they did that. Remember, Mario Chalmers started 82 games as a rookie. 
at the at the most difficult position to play at the point guard spot. They were counting on Michael Beasley to step up. We know the problems that he had early in his career being consistent, giving them anything, obviously, on the defensive end and just in terms of, of overall basketball IQ that they wanted him to show at that point. And he made the playoffs with those two teams, then obviously has the, the pressure, the scrutiny that comes with the big three, with with being sort of a manager of personalities, you know, Eric once you know told me that basically he considered 75 to 80 percent of his job to be managing personalities. And, and during the big three era, I think it might have been even higher than that. And then, you know, after that, obviously the letdown of uh, LeBron leaving and, and you know, they had a, a down year after that. You take a look at most of the guys that were on that team in 2014-15. They're not in the NBA anymore. Uh, he, so that team didn't make the playoffs, but not all that surprising. Then sort of, uh, you know, a more veteran team the year after they got within one game of the Eastern Conference final. And then uh, and then last year having that amazing turnaround. So uh, I don't really know that there's a team that Eric Spolster has coached that has in any way significantly fallen short of expectations. I, I guess you could say maybe the first year of the big three. But, right. You know, Following the Goron trade where, yes, Chris Bosch goes down and that, that was a big reason to do with it. But right. not making the playoffs that year when you had, at varying points in the year, Wade, who still wasn't totally, he's not even now totally past it, uh, mm-hmm. Bosch, who was in his prime, uh, but, you know, for 50 games, you know, he played a significant amount of games and after the Goron trade, the fact that it never clicked after the trade, I would say is probably the biggest mm-hmm. black mark on his coaching career, but still, that's minor compared to other resumes around the league and just in general, the fact that he's had one misstep and now, is this his ninth year, his tenth year as he coached? Yeah, I guess this would be 2008-2009 uh, was his first. This would be his 10th year uh, as heat coach. And, you know, I, I think the slow start the year 15-16 uh, that they had when Bosch was healthy and that team I think was only four games over 500 at the All-Star break. But remember, e- even that team, you know, the Luol Dang moved to power forward and in the second half of the season playing an entirely different way than they had played in the first half because they really had tried to base that team around Chris. Um, it, that Dwayne was kind of moving back to a second option. They were trying to play through Chris and, you know, they have to play a totally different way the second half of the year. The other thing you mentioned, you talk about this 54 and 28, how that's, you know, top of the Eastern conference last year. You know, if you take a 54 and 28 record and put it in the 2016, 17 season as a whole, they would have been the number one seed in the Eastern conference. The number one seed in the Eastern conference last year, only won 53 games, mm-hmm. uh, Boston and Cleveland at 51. So, you know, this is a very high level at a very sustained pace, and I know I know something we're going to get into over the course of the show, but it hasn't been exactly the same players either. So it, it's you know we can talk about continuity, but it, in large part, you know, some of these guys are taking on different roles this year. Now, you, you you talked about coaching, and generally, when we are struggling to find answers for why things are happening different than we would have expected, we turn to coaching, but. Mm-hmm. Is it really possible that, yes, the culture obviously is talked about a ton, but that you can get a group of players to try harder than the other teams in the NBA? I just I, That doesn't resonate with me on, on, on a real level, and yet when you try and look for basketball reasons, right. yeah, yes, there are you know, there's slashes and kicking, and there's schematic elements that have made this work on both sides of the ball. I just still don't think that, that Eric Spolster can be that much better at coaching than the rest of the league who are trying to do the same thing with arguably more stars, right? There are other teams that have more star players. You look at the Milwaukee Bucks. They have Giannis Antetokounmpo, mm-hmm. and yet 
They have a worse record than the Miami Heat. The, the Philadelphia 76ers, yes, Joel Embiid is not healthy often enough, but they have Ben Simmons. They have J.J. Redick. They have other quality players that are trying to do the same thing that the Miami Heat are. How is Eric Spolstra... How are the Heat better at it than everybody else? Well, I think you've skipped to number three on our reasons that they are confounding is that they don't have a star. Right. Uh, and, <laughs> and, and, and so uh, I think, again, you take a look at the Eastern Conference, which is, is limited in star power compared to the West simply because most of the premium talent in the NBA over recent years, when it's moved, it's moved West as opposed to going East. There are exceptions, obviously, but even some of those exceptions, like, say, a Gordon Hayward, have not been able to stay healthy and and uh, and sort of elevate. And so the next generation of stars in the East, you know, seem to be the guys like Embiid and Simmons, who are really sort of in their very you know primary stages at this point. But yeah, I mean, you take a look at the Eastern Conference and. Who are we saying is the Heat's best player at this point? Is it there was I guess you do I would, you would, I would say split between I would, Whiteside and Dragic at yeah. one point, but mm-hmm. but but Josh Richardson's been their best player over the past three weeks, and none of those three guys. I mean, Goran, as much as I admire him as a player and his toughness and everything else, I mean, Goran's never made an All Star team. So you take a look at the Eastern Conference, every one of those teams they're competing with right now has a player who has more pedigree or more talent than the Heat's best player. You take a look at Boston with Kyrie, obviously Cleveland with, you know, LeBron, now Isaiah and the mix of Kevin Love, the mix that they have right there. Toronto with DeRozan. You can make an argument when healthy that Lowry is uh, is still at a level that is above any of the Heat's players. Uh, Washington has one, probably two. Right. Uh, you, you you were making the case. We were talking about this yesterday that they might have three actually mm-hmm. in, in I, Otto I, Porter. I think Otto Porter is better than anyone than the Heat have. Okay, and I think that's it's an interesting case to make. I don't know how Otto would be as a lead guy on a team because he seems perfect for sort of the role that he has right now. But but certainly you, you can make that case. You take a look at at some of the other teams, you know, in the Eastern Conference they're competing with. Bucks, obviously, their best player is better than the Heat's best player. The Pistons is Drummond at this stage with the year that he's having better than the Heat's best player, most likely, right? And the Pacers, Oladipo, I, I, we wouldn't have said this maybe before this season, but Oladipo is you know, playing at a level that none of the Heat players are playing at. And you can go even deeper in it. I mean, the Hornets' best player, you know, uh, he does, they've lost a lot of close games this year. They've been a big disappointment. But Kemba Walker. And so, uh, you know, it really is sort of a, a remarkable thing when you take a look at it and, and, you, and you say, all right, it, you know, the Heat's best player on his best day uh, doesn't match up with these other teams, and yet you have the Heat right now, which are ahead of you know Giannis's team, ahead of Drummond's team, ahead of Oladipo's team, ahead of Embiid's team. Go even deeper, ahead of Porzingis's team mm-hmm. uh, at this point, with the Knicks you know on a 38 win pace, which they'll certainly take, but behind the Heat right now, and and so it, it really is. I think it, it does speak you know in large part to what Eric you know has accomplished in terms of getting this going, and and you know to get to the other point. I guess, Chris, and I know you, you like to dig into the numbers here, and, and you know we, we look at this to see if it's sustainable. Since we're sort of new at this, we skipped over our second point, but let's get to it. They've, yeah. they've, they've been outscored on the season at this point, the Heat have. Even after this stretch, they are their net rating is a negative at this point. To you, does that make this seem like a mirage? Or, again, do we just say, okay, they can sustain it because they've been able to do it so far? Well, they're winning a ton in close games, and I think that's something that, depending on your perspective, can either mean that you think that they're particularly good in those kinds of situations, but that, again, in and of itself is confounding because 
generally, and I, our, our friend Chris Perkins loves talking about this, that the Heat don't have a closer, that, that closers are something you need in the NBA in the final three minutes of games, and yet the Heat continually play in games that come down to the final three minutes as they did on Wednesday night. We're taping this on a Thursday. And they found the offense, whether it was Wayne Ellington hitting from five feet behind the line and getting the shooter's bouncer, just generally creating decent looks because it's really hard to generate quality looks at end of games. And yet they've been really good, abnormally good in those kinds of situations. I do think that that will eventually topple over and that it'll, it'll look more when they start playing tougher teams, like they're more like the 500 team that their numbers say that they are. But still, the fact that they're even doing the winning at the end of games without Deion Waiters, who was meant to be the guy that you gave the ball to at the end of games, to me, it A, pokes hole in that idea that Deion Waiters, or really the concept of needing a guy that you give the ball to to play isolation offense, is a quality strategy. And then the second part is that they are good at those situations, despite the fact that, again, everything about this team is you look at it on paper, you look at the names, you look at the pedigrees, and they don't have enough, and yet they have somehow managed it. And that's a credit to the coaching. Eric Spolster is one of the best out-of-timeout coaches in the mm-hmm. entire league. Uh, the, the, the plays that he draws up are incredible. And to those players that are out there on the floor, Wayne Ellington, they've maximized his talents. He's a 41% three-point shooter on, ten, on you know close to seven attempts a game. Goran Dragic driving to the lane does enough. Josh Richardson does enough. And in the end, that's who they are as a team. They do just enough. So they're not going to blow teams out, but they're winning a lot of games. Well, and you mentioned waiters, and, and that's one of the places we go here because, you know, you talk about the clutch situations, and Dion was great, uh, obviously, in the second half of the season in particular last year in those situations. Um, you know, you look before that, the year before, Dwayne had a really good year in terms of his field goal percentage in clutch situations after a slow start. And you know, like you said, now there's not one place that they're going as opposed to anywhere else. There's also, you know, hasn't been one lineup. You know, I, I know Spolster's gotten to a little bit more of a consistent lineup of late, but, you know, really, you know, you take a look at it, he's been tinkering so much with the lineups in terms of, you know, this team now playing the two bigs together at times, which is, you know, something, again, wasn't doing early in the year. Remember, there was sort of a call for why Whiteside and Olenek weren't playing it all together. Now we're seeing, you know, Whiteside some without a bio. Uh, so they're going with different groups, and they're going with different groups late. He seems to be keeping Ellington on the floor at all times. But again, you look at this group, there's no one in this group, as you mentioned, who has any pedigree for end of game situations. You know, Goran Dragic's numbers in Phoenix were good, you know, in terms of doing that. But as we know, Goran took a real backseat here to Dwayne in those situations, hardly ever took a shot in clutch situations while Dwayne was here. And, you know, now obviously he's on the floor in those spots. We've seen Tyler Johnson on the floor in those spots. I think there's a certain benefit to the unpredictability of it. I, I think, and I know when we did the radio show together, we talked about this a lot, but this idea that, you know, Dwayne was going to get the ball and you sort of get out of the way. And then it kind of became the same thing with Dion last year. That's, you know, that at times can be relatively easy to defend. It's one of the reasons why we see the great players in the league have their field goal percentages cut considerably in those clutch situations because there is a predictability to when they're going to get the ball, where they're going to get the ball, where they like to go in terms of left hand, right hand, you know, where they like to be, whether it's in the post, the perimeter, it's pretty easy to scout or whatever. Pretty easy to scout. The, the Heat are much more challenging to scout right now, and they seem to be playing with the freedom because there is no pressure on one guy. I guess the question becomes, Chris, is there one guy 
that you can see getting the bulk of those opportunities going forward, or, or do they stay with this formula? It would only be Deion Waiters if he came back and was fully healthy. I think when Deion Waiters is on the floor at the end of games, that's just what he does. And I saw some conversation last night on social media about, well, why would Eric Spolster allow him to do this? And I think you, having been in so many NBA locker rooms, can speak to this better than I can. There really is no saying to somebody who believes, like, Eric Spolster was never going to go to Dwayne Wade and be like, hey, can we run a motion offense at the end of games instead? That's just one of those things that goes unspoken, doesn't it? Well, it is. I mean, I remember asking Eric about this a couple seasons ago, and his quote to me was, you know, about Dwayne taking shots. I know there was a question because he'd taken a shot. I think it was against Charlotte that there was some question about in the regular season. I think it was the three mm-hmm. uh, that that he took, and and obviously that was not particularly at that point. You know, Dwayne wasn't taking a lot of threes, and that was before he blew up in the playoffs against Charlotte from three. That uh, you know, there was a lot of question about him taking that shot, and, and Eric's quote to me was, "I'll go to my grave with Dwayne Wade taking the shot at the end of the game." There was a certainty to it, and in the same way that you know LeBron was going to get a lot of those opportunities when he was here, and and Dion has by force of personality kind of stepped into that last year, made the shot against Golden State, made some others, and and sort of became that guy. But the thing about it too is you look at some of the guys on this roster, and Josh Richardson is a really bright kid. He's not he's not he doesn't have a huge ego, you know. I, I don't I don't think, and I, particularly at this stage of his career. I don't think Josh is going to demand the ball in those situations. So you look at the group that they have now. Wayne Ellington has been, you know, over the course of his career, a, you know, a fringe rotation player. You know, somebody who's bounced around from place to place. Goran Dragic is not, doesn't have that type of personality either. So they don't have anybody on this team that Eric has to say, okay, back off a little bit. We need somebody else to to sort of take the shot. I, I think it's more he he wants them at this point to sort of be aggressive and look for those opportunities. I'm trying to find uh, what the NBA's website calls clutch uh, Mm -hmm. because they have clutch statistics. I believe it's less than five minutes to go game within five points either either way. And the Heat have the highest plus minus in clutch situations. So they've played in clutch situations 25 times, won 18, lost seven, and they've outscored opponents by 61 in clutch situations, that's highest in the league. Cleveland is second at 54, San Antonio third at 44. So that it's just it's crazy when you think about it as a, a team that is doing well at the end of games, and yet the NBA kind of stereotype is you have to have a singular talent that does that. But the other thing we want to get to in our reason number two why the Heat are confounding, we mentioned being outscored in the season, and there are statistical indicators that would lead you to believe that they are better than their record should be is they are statistically better without players that they believe to be important. Whiteside goes out, Bam emerges, and perhaps the offense flows a little bit better. Justice Winslow has been out for an extended period of time, and that's when the Heat have taken off. And coincidentally, it's when the Heat took off last year when he got hurt. Similar with Deion Waiters, where they they gave him a contract. They thought he would be a, a primary ball handler in their offense. Him and Dragic found a combination that worked together, and yet since he's gone out, things have been better offensively. So the the ultimate question is, are they actually better without some of these guys? And if so, what do they do? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think you remember last year also, one of the guys that has been so key for them, especially lately, has been Josh Richardson. And they played better at times without Josh last year, too. So, uh, you know, I think there has been an addition by subtraction situation. I, I think, Chris, it comes down in a lot of this to what the contracts of these various guys are. Um, you know, you say, what do you do about the center spot? Well, okay, you know, we've always, you know, for, for re- in recent years, the Heat 
you know, have sort of struggled to find additional power players, right? Like they, uh, one of the reasons that they went small when they went small was the, the year that LeBron came, uh, their centers, you know, were guys like McGlore and Pittman and Dampier, right? And Ilgauskas. Um, and you go forward there and then the transition of Chris Bosch to a full-time center. And they, they really have not had, you know, a lot of functional, you know, n- not, not even dynamic but just functional bigs uh in the system i guess willie reed was that for them last year so now you sort of you have an embarrassment of riches now in terms of the front court where you have three guys who are probably better at the center spot right olenic is more of a natural five in the modern nba uh Adebayo is also and and, and right side certainly is and in a league that that doesn't really value the five spot as much as it used to and so the question is how do you get these guys to all play together uh, or do you have to move Whiteside, and then the contract becomes the factor there with you know the ninety-eight million dollar total, and obviously the twenty-five million dollars that he's owed next year. So um, you know with Hassan, you know you take a look at last night against Indiana, and you can see his impact uh, when when he's focused, and uh, you know he's he's now played down the stretch of the last couple of games. But as you said, there have been times that they've played better without him. They're pretty much the same team statistically with or without him on the court this year. Um, so that's, that's one thing to consider. Then you look at the justice situation. Uh, that, that's a tough one. I, you know, I, I've been a big justice Winslow supporter since the heat drafted him. I, I do think players can become better shooters over the course of their career. You take a look and I know this comparison has become tired, but you take a look at the Kawhi Leonard situation. You know, Kawhi was not a good perimeter shooter, uh, you know, distance shooter when he came to the league and he's become an excellent one. Uh, Jimmy Butler, another exam. Jimmy's not a great three point shooter still, but uh, has become more proficient than he was when he first came in his career. We're even seeing DeMar DeRozan, you know, sort of in the prime of his career, you know, learn how to how to hit the three. So I, I think that, you know, Justice can become a more a better player for them offensively when he's a player that has to be guarded. And that is going to come from his shooting. But it is hard to ignore at this point, you know, that. They they have sort of struggled to find the right role for him. Um, you take a look at him and, and you say, okay, he can be, you know, he's a small forward. Josh Richardson, I always felt this would be his natural position. He has sort of an Eddie Jones dynamic that he could he could grow into a three. Uh, and then, you know, but now, you know, now Josh has got that spot. So where where are the minutes for justice? And then you take a look at the, the four spot. It's already becoming more challenging, uh, you know, giving James Johnson his healthy dose of minutes because – you have more bigs that mm-hmm. can play. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. What's the first thing you'd do if you had an extra hour in your day? Go for a run, take a nap, maybe check the stats of the latest Miami Heat game? I've got a better idea. A lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. The question is time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? The best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what's important to you and make it a priority. Therapy can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it. I've benefited from therapy. I went through some life changes, major life events, had some difficulties, wasn't a believer in therapy, but it helped me and it can help you also. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. So learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash Miami Heat today to get 10% off your first month. Again, that's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Miami Heat.
Wilson, you sent the game-winning email at the buzzer, avoiding a 4.55 meeting on everyone's calendar. How did you do it? I got a huge assist from Grammarly, an AI writing partner that helped me make my point. 96% of Grammarly users say that it helps them craft more impactful writing. Would you agree? Grammarly helped adjust my tone to navigate tough work conversations. And it works everywhere I write, so I can quickly communicate effectively. Your teammate used Grammarly to summarize an important document, making a three-pointer. How did he do it? It only took one click. When everyone uses Grammarly, everything just makes sense. You made an incredible slam dunk to end the game. The meeting was canceled, and your team will go home champions. Go to Grammarly.com slash podcast to download it for free. That's Grammarly.com slash podcast. Easier said, done. Catch those springtime vibes all over Arizona. Break out of the winter blues by hitting the water at one of our lake and river parks. Take a hike among the wildflowers. Just make sure to stay on the trails and leave the flowers for the bees. Discover Arizona's best kept secret and visit azstateparks.com slash amazing to start your springtime adventure. Right, because Kelly Olenek is playing there too. Right. So now, I mean, you got 48 minutes to split at that spot, and so that's going to become more challenging. So where does does justice fit, and do you really want to trade a guy at this point who is sort of at the low point of his value at 21 years old? Um, is this, you know, and and you know, his former teammate uh, who was just traded from Philadelphia, Gila Locafor, is this a, a situation where you just give up on a guy uh, because you don't have a role for him at this stage? And I think you hit on the important point, which was he has to earn the respect of defenders because, yeah, statistically his shooting has improved. And I was looking at his shot chart this morning, and he has a couple of spots that he's found. The right corner, he's shooting at around 43%, which is decent enough. Uh, the right wing, too, has been good. But in the left corner, he's one of ten. And I think in general, and we see that we see this a lot in the playoffs, and I think it's gotten to a really exaggerated point where I think teams are now looking for things that we just don't even have to worry about, right? And you look at what the Warriors did to Tony Allen where they just left him unguarded, and I think that kind of ushered in an era of specific scouting and really disrespecting players and making them take shots that they don't want to take. And I think it's too easy to do that to the Heat when you look at the combination of players that can put on the floor. They can put... James Johnson on the floor, who's not a good shooter. Hassan Whiteside on the floor, who's not a good shooter. Justice Winslow on the floor, who's not a good shooter. There's just too many guys. I think you can get away with one. Like, mm-hmm. for example, what the Houston Rockets do when they play Clint Capella, where, yes, he's not a good shooter, but he's a rim runner and, and, and does enough to where you keep him on the floor. I don't, think, I don't think Houston would ever feel comfortable putting a second guy on the floor like Clint Capella, who's not a threat to make a three. And I think that's the problem with the Heat right now with their roster construction is they have money committed to guys. You know, James Johnson, they give a lot of money. Hassan Whiteside, they give a lot of money who aren't already good shooters. If you put them together on the floor, it's difficult. If you put them together on the floor with Justice Winslow, it gets even harder. And so I think the decision is obviously the, the, the Sixers traded Jaleel for because they weren't going to pay him. And so right. they'd rather get something in return, even if it wasn't very much. I think that's the problem that the Heat are facing right now is that this is year three for Justice Winslow. You have one more year to figure out, all right, are, are we going to give him the extension? And that would seem a difficult prospect depending on what the salary and what the years are. Yeah, and you take a look at, you know, before last year, Justice was talking. Um, I think he came on our show 
and talked about how he thought that he could be the face of the franchise going forward. And uh, again, it's hard to see a path to that at this stage. Now, you know, 21 years old, too hard to give up on a guy at this point. But, you know, when I talked to a lot of scouts, you know, after Justice was drafted, you know, they talked about the fact that they thought Justice would have really struggled on a on a bad team. If he had come into a bad team to start with, he would have really struggled because, again, there would have been a burden on him to score and sort of be that lead guy. He came into the perfect team his first season. Um, veteran guys up and down the roster, veteran starting lineup, and you know, and Justice was basically, you know, was playing heavy minutes, but he had a very specialized role. You know, he was going to defend the other team's best perimeter. You know, because it wasn't something Dwayne could or wanted to do anymore. Justice was going to do it. And and he was, you know, going to facilitate some offensively, uh, you know, he not from the top as much as he liked, but he was going to get to do some of it with this team. This is a good team, but it's not a good team in a traditional sense, as we've been talking about on the show. Like they, it doesn't have a, a clear star system where justice can plug a role. Um, this team, you know, is is sort of a, a collection of the sum of its parts. And it's hard to see at this point, what justice offers that other guys on the team don't like, for instance, I mean, James Johnson at this stage, uh, you know, does a lot of the things that justice is projected to do. Right. I mean, a secondary ball handler, uh, physical defender, you know, slides up from the three to the four, you know, can do those kinds of things. Good cutting good movement off the ball. Right. And, and James has become really good at that stuff, uh, better at this stage of his career than at any other and, you know, is 10 years older than Justice. There's a maturity to his game, obviously. Justice mature for his age. But it's, but then you take a look at it and you say, okay, all right, so maybe there's some duplication with James Johnson. But now there's, you know, with, with Josh Richardson also, because Josh Richardson is now playing the position that Justice was originally projected for. And, you know, and Josh is, you know, often guarding the opposing team's best perimeter. So it, it's hard to see exactly, you know, where he fits um, and and again, for other teams, I think other teams are going to struggle to figure out where he fits for them because, you know, you're not bringing him in to be a primary scorer and you haven't seen him on the court now for most of the past year plus. So I still think he's got a bright future ahead of him. I just don't it just may not end up being uh, with this franchise in the way that we thought so Originally, the other guy that you mentioned, uh, we get to the three W's here. Yeah. Uh, the other one you mentioned is Waiters. And, you know, this is a complicated one because was Dion playing the way that Dion was playing over the course of the first half of the season because of the ankle? Or I think so. I, I, th- I think you, it was injury more think, than, than regression. Than regression. Okay. Well, if, if you're to make that argument, then there's still a future there. Um, and obviously, Dion's still a young guy. But there was a pretty small sample size last year. Um, I mean, really, you were talking about 25 to 30 games uh, that Dion was hurt. And they did miss him down the stretch of the season last year. They 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 probably make the playoffs, and uh, they only lost by a tiebreaker. But, Chris, they probably make the playoffs if Dion's healthy at the end of last year, I would think, the way, the mm-hmm. way that he was playing. He was worth so, one extra win to get them in over Chicago. Right, and particularly some of the teams that they lost to at the right. end of last year. You know, you'd figure they would have beaten some of them. So, uh, you know, and, and again, at that stage, you know, there was no confidence in, you know, Josh Richardson was sort of still working his way into shape. Um, so I, I, I think, again, it's too soon to say, well, they're a better team without Dion Waiters. But they certainly have found something in terms of, you know, not being as, as, as we talked about earlier, as ISO dominant and sort of relying on him to create as much at the end of games. 
And that leads us into point number three, which we already hit on, but there, there's another angle that I, I think we should explore. Um, and I think Justice Winslow, uh, getting back to him briefly, is has always been highlighted for the little things that he does, but he doesn't do the big things well enough. And I think that's generally a theme with the entire team. Reason number three, the Heat are confounding. They don't have a star, and they don't really have a chance to get one, which is my own personal viewpoint. You can disagree with it if you like. But I think when you look at the trade market, when you look at the, the draft situation where they don't have a draft pick uh, you know, in the top region, even if, even if they were to keep their own pick, um, they're, they're too good to have a pick in the top five. Um, and then you, you look at free agency, they're pretty well capped out, which is our point number four. We'll get to that in a second. The avenue for a star is not readily available because you, we, we mentioned the, the, the plus players, the value mm-hmm. players on the team. You just gave Josh Richardson an extension, which is an affordable one and a tradable one, but I don't think you'd be ready to get rid of him. Uh, Dragic is heading towards a descent, and a lot of good teams have point guards already. Hassan Whiteside mm-hmm. costs a lot of money. Justice Winslow is at a low in terms of trade value. So who are the guys that are going to yield you this star? If New Orleans decides we're going to pull the plug on Boogie Cousins, what does that offer look like, and can New Orleans do better? That, for me, is the ultimate conundrum with this team right now is this is fun. The, the run of 82 games is fun in terms of 54 and 28, and I think the fans are enjoying it on a night-to-night basis. But in general, the way I view sports is that it has to be productive in terms of either achieving a short- or long-term goal. Are you going to reach the conference finals, or are you finding players that are going to help you four years from now really compete for a title? Because obviously this is about winning championships, and I think Pat Riley would agree with me. So what is the Heat's path to finding the big trade? And particularly Pat Riley in his 70s. Right, uh, exactly. Who, who may be a year or two away from retiring, we don't know. And then, you know, it's going to be, you know, Shane Battier, Eric Spolstra, Andy Ellisberg, and, and Nick Arison, uh, who, you know, some combination of that who's going to be running the organization. I, I think you're right about the, the idea of acquiring a star. Um, I, I, I don't see it with the assets that the Heat have. I don't know that there's any team that's going to give up a star player for good players who are, you know, sort of, uh, you know, who have multiple years left on their contracts. And and who are on at-market deals, not value deals. Right. There's no no huge value deal uh, on the Heat at this point. Um, James Johnson, as you mentioned, that's, you know, that's market value. You can argue with the length of that contract that it might have been above market value a little bit. Deion Waiters, uh, at at best, it's market value. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, uh, you know, again, with what the track gotten, record, What you've gotten so far has been below market. Exactly. Uh, Kelly Olenek, I, I think they've gotten more out of him this year than I would have anticipated, but you can't make the argument that that's a below, uh, that that's, that's a below market contract. So, you know, and Josh Richardson, uh, you know, again, that might be their, their best chip, at this stage, uh, you know, if, if a team thinks he can be a star, but if the Heat think he can be a star or a borderline star, then why is he the guy that you would move? So they, they don't really have those pieces. And again, in the modern NBA, the Hassan Whiteside contract, uh, you know, again, you know, only two years left on it after this one. But, uh, you know, you can't make an argument that that's a below market contract. So they don't they don't have that kind of deal to make. And I think, you know, you mentioned Boogie Cousins, and that name comes up a lot, obviously, because, you know, it's not clear that's going to work in New Orleans. Uh, they are probably going to make the playoffs. They, they might, you know, as a seven or an eight seed uh, in the West, the West is down a little bit from where it's been. They're eight recent, right now. They're 500. Years. 
Right. And I think I think a 500 team is going to get in the playoffs in the West, which that has not always been the case. But I think this year it probably will. But if you're New Orleans, I mean, you know, then you're making a commitment to saying, OK, we're, we're going to build around Anthony Davis again. We tried that before. But are the Heat's guys the guys that we want to build? You know, are those guys going to keep Anthony Davis happy in New Orleans? And, and the answer to that is is probably no. Or are they the next step towards that next level? Because I think when they traded for Boogie Cousins, they had more than a 500 team in mind. Obviously, yeah. it, was, it was always going to be a hard fit between Davis and Cousins, two seven-footers playing together when the entire league is moving away from that. But... I think they would have imagined that this would be better by now, and they have a ton of money you know, locked up in Drew Holiday, and the rest of their wings aren't very good. And so maybe they think two or three wings for one Boogie Cousins is better for our team, but that's a difficult sell. It is, and you know, you mentioned it. I mean, they're a 500 team, even though Drew Holiday is, has played to the level of the contract so far, or at least, I mean, it's hard to play the level of that contract because it was such a ridiculous number, but he's played well um, in sort of transitioning to a new role. And yet again, as you say, it's still just a 500 team in a West Western conference that's a little bit more wide open than it's been in the past. And and they've clearly, you know, we looked, you know, last year and said, all right, which is the team? Is it Minnesota or New Orleans that's going to kind of take that next step up in the West? And clearly it's been Minnesota uh, that has, has done that. It hasn't been New Orleans, even though, you know, both teams, you know, have – you could argue both teams have two all-stars, uh, you know, at, you know, at this point uh, with Minnesota having Towns and Butler. So I, I just don't I don't see a team where there's that star that's going to you know, we, we say there will always be a star for for for, uh, for Pat Riley to go after. And I know Zach Lowe in his excellent piece yesterday wrote about this. There'll always be some disgruntled star. And that has been the path for Riley, even more so. You could argue than free agency. You take a look at how he's acquired players and even eliminating the fact that LeBron and Bosch were signed in trades. You know, you look at Zoe, you look at Shaq, Tim Hardaway, Jamal Mashburn, Goran Dragic. These were all trades. Um, these were all players who were unhappy in their current situation for one reason or another, and Pat went and got them. But I, I don't. Again, I look at the league right now, and I don't see. I don't see that guy. Um, you know, Paul George was available last. You know, last year, uh, Jimmy Butler was available last year. Uh, obviously, Jimmy Butler's comfortable in his new situation. Paul George is going to be a free agent. Um, and I don't think Miami is, is a primary target. Now, you could, you could say, okay, is a guy like Kemba Walker? Like, that's one player I look at. But even is bringing in a, a, a sub-six-foot point guard, um, you know, at this stage, does that get you to the next level? You know, as good as Kemba is? Probably no. not. So, I, I don't I, – you know, I think what's happened here to a large degree is that – I think there's there's an understanding, uh, and I know Eric, how big Eric Spolstra is on development, that it is harder to get the star than it used to be. And so a lot of this does come down to getting the absolute most out of the players that you have. And that's kind of what they've committed to right now. And they've put uh, a lot of the burden on Eric Spolstra and his staff to get the most out of these guys. But I also think that if you're another general manager, you look at that and you say, okay, is that guy, like some of these contracts that they signed to say on average 12 or $13 million a year, is that guy going to be that for us in our system, in our culture? Or is that a product of the Heat's continuity, of the Heat's culture and all the rest of that? And I think that is a case where the Heat's excellence in terms of developing players works against them a little bit. Yeah. Because because if you're another team and you know that your, your organization is a bit of a bleep show, um, which 
if you're trading a star, it probably is yes. because yes. because if you can't if you can't make it work with the star, how are you going to make it work with lesser players? Or if there, I mean, I, I guess I wouldn't say Indiana is necessarily a bleep show, but right. it's not a desirable market either. It's not a desirable market, and the player wants to go to a specific location. Otherwise, he wouldn't be available. Right, and, and so I, I I just don't. I look at it and I say I I don't know. Necessarily, and then then you look at the Heat situation going forward, and obviously because of the Dragic trade, uh, they don't have draft picks either to use themselves or to use as chips mm-hmm. in a trade. And so I, I don't know, and I think this is why you know again in Zach's piece, you know he talked about Josh Richardson, and then also you know the, how good Adebayo is going to be. I mean the reality is the, the Heat's going to need somebody is going to have to emerge as a star, and it's a it's a lot to ask. Of in Richardson's case, a former second-round pick who's already wildly surpassed mm-hmm. uh, any expectations for the spot that he got drafted, or Adebayo, um, who you know was in college, you know a player who was more of a role guy, obviously very young, uh, you know to say the, one of these two guys is going to be our next star, but but that may be what it requires for the Heat because I, I just don't know if there's going to be a guy out there. Yeah, and and I think you look at the landscape, you're basically narrowing the star that you're trying to get to a team that is also still trying to compete while also trading away a star, which is a very Mm -hmm. rare situation because in most cases, you look at what the Kings did, you look at what the Bulls did and getting rid of their stars, they're then using it as a launch pad towards a rebuilding project. And if if, if the Heat are trying to acquire someone who is then and that team is then going to try and rebuild the heat don't have the draft picks to give them right and so that it's a very specific subset which is why i i don't i don't think there's much of a chance there and so you're really you know pushing the can you're kicking the can down the road towards 2020 to where you kind of have your books open again and that gets us to our to our fourth reason which is the salary committed is astronomical and mm-hmm. I, I was looking at the 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 2018 cap hits Tyler Johnson becomes the 47th highest paid player in the NBA, uh, just behind Clay Thompson, just ahead of uh, now. Again, these aren't these aren't great deals either. But Enos Cantor, Wes Matthews, Joe Kim Noah, and Alan Crabb. Oof, those are those are 0 for four. Um, but it also makes Tyler's deal untradeable. I mean, let, let's you can, be honest. Well, you, you can you can thank the Nets for two of those, right? That's right, the Alan exactly. Crabb deal and, and the Tyler yes. Johnson deal. Well, yeah, well, then the Nets went and picked him up in, in, in a trade anyway. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, so in terms of top cap hits on the team, Hassan's at 25. Um, you have Tyler at 18.8, Goran Dragic at 18.1, and then you go down a little bit. James Johnson's at 14.6, which is still a big number. Uh, you have a couple of guys at 11, Deion Waiters at 11.5, and Olenek at 11.1. Uh, those are top 110 salaries in the league. And yes, the salary cap went up, but then it kind of plateaued too. Where right. you know the the Warriors and the Cavs are so good that they ruined the basketball revenue of the league, and so the cap went down a little bit. So you have a ton of salary committed to a team that's not going to win the championship, if we're being honest. And I, that that sort of begs the question: Well, then, what is it all for? Well, I, I think it, that's a good question, and I think this this is where you get into the idea of what Pat Riley did last summer and kind of what the thinking was behind it, particularly at this stage of his career, which is, is he satisfied with with merely being respectable and competitive? And he never has been, right? I mean, that's mm-hmm. been the whole thing. It's winning or misery, and winning doesn't mean 47 games. Um, so, I, And, and I think, the, the other thing, too, Ethan, is that mm-hmm. no one else in the league is doing this either. That's, that, that's no. the other crazy thing about it is that everyone in the league is moving away from this. Just well, everyone win, the, winning just to win. 
Right. I mean, uh, well, you look at, I mean, you mentioned before a team that like the Pacers sort of went uh, this direction a little bit uh, with, with the trades, the trade picking up Oladipo and Sabonis. But even in that case, Oladipo was what fourth season Sabonis was coming off his rookie year. And, and they've, both of those guys have exceeded expectations with Indiana this year, which is why they're, you know, they're 21 and 20 right now, but yeah, no other team in the league is doing this. And, and again, I think this gets back to our last point, which is, I think there was a certain concession that there just isn't a star out there. And, and so I, I think if there was, if, if there was a star that the heat were gunning for, or thought that they could get, Riley thought that he could get, he would not have committed, uh, this kind of salary in terms of these many years to to merely as maniacal as he used to be about not giving the extra year to make sure that he could be competitive in the free agent market. Uh, he obviously doesn't see, you know, the, the level of candidates, you know, in terms of free agency that he saw before he would not would not have done this. I, I think the other point you know to make on this is if you look at the Eastern Conference and again, we don't know what's going to happen with LeBron, although I, I think uh LeBron's more likely to stay than not. Okay, I, I think I think that it's likely that he stays. I think Kobe Altman up there, the GM, is a bright guy. I think that uh, that they will be able to attract some players up there, even when they're dealing with all their salary issues. Uh, we'll have to see what they do with Isaiah Thomas's deal expiring. But but let's let's assume LeBron stays in Cleveland. Uh, but even if he doesn't, you know, Giannis, you know, you know, with Milwaukee now, certainly you know next season, um, you know, you take a look at the the Sixers situation. Um, you know, with with Simmons and Embiid, uh, you know, Wall and Beal, you know, you know, in terms of being with the Wizards, there there is there are teams that are ahead in the pecking order of the Heat, and as you mentioned, you know, you know, the Heat's going to be an expensive team, um, you know, even without having that level of player, and so I I still think it it comes back to to this is that that they they're going to need somebody on their roster to develop into that guy and, and to exceed his contract's value. And, you know, right now, I, I guess if, if we're ruling out Winslow as that possibility, at, at least at the moment, then maybe it ha- it's going to have to be Richardson or Adebayo, I guess. And, and I, you know, especially as Goran's, Goran may decline. Now, Goran may not decline as precipitously as some other point guards because he didn't, he doesn't have quite the wear on him as some other guys do once they hit 31 32 um you know we saw steve nash win mvps right at like 32 and 33 yep. i think and, and uh, I, I just i i don't see declines happening at quite the rate of speed that they used to because of sports science because of mm-hmm. taking care of bodies and all that and you mentioned the miles i mean he started off his career uh in europe and then moved to being a player where you know he was a backup to steve nash for a good amount of time and didn't really find a starting job until year four year five in the league yeah, so he he doesn't have quite quite the wear of some others, but but yeah, I mean you're not expecting Goran to take another step up at no. this point. You're just holding that he hoping he can he can kind of hold the line and and stay uh, at this level or something close to it for the next couple of seasons. So I I mean you're right. I mean we we keep hitting on the, uh, uh, something similar here, but I I think it it comes down to this. I mean, can this Heat group really defy convention? Um, which is you know we we've seen that it's very hard to compete in the NBA without a lead guy, uh, at least compete for a championship. It's very hard to sustain it. You know, we've seen some teams that have come together and been been good for a period of time. Now, people mention that Detroit team that won champ- the championship in 04. Uh, but, that, but that Detroit team, although it didn't have, you know, a top 10 player in the league, you can argue, at any, at any given time, uh, four, four of those guys, okay, maybe even five if you include Tayshaun Prince, uh, were in the top five at their position. 
at the at the point that 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 Detroit won a championship, right? I mean, Chauncey Billups was, uh, you know, was was arguably a top five point guard um, at the height of of Detroit's run. Rip Hamilton certainly was was in that neighborhood. Rasheed Wallace certainly had that talent, right? And and Ben Wallace in terms of what he did. And those uh, are players a, with more experience as well, with more, with more years in the league. Right. So, I mean, we, we talk about them being the ultimate anomaly, but but, you know, when you look back at that team, you know, it was a very talented team. You know what the Heat are trying to do is it, it really is. We come back to this from the beginning of the podcast. It's really a bet in large part on Eric Spolstra and his staff to drag more out of these guys. Um, you know, Pat Riley used to get more out of those those heat groups in the late 90s than than you could really argue was was legitimate. Um, but. You know, with you know, Tim Hardaway was not the Tim Hardaway of Golden State, uh, but was still you know you know close to an elite point guard with the Heat, and Alonzo Mourning you know was second in the MVP race one year. So he had, although you know we talk about them sort of getting blood from a stone with that group, and I think that's one of the reasons they failed in the playoffs because they he, he sort of got as much out of them as he could in the regular season. There was no other level to go to in the playoffs, but but they had more front end talent than the Heat have. So. I, you're right. I think it's going to be be challenging to go another level up from here. And that brings us to point number five, which is competition both in the East and in the NBA is just flatly better than they are. And I think this is something that, that we talked about off air yesterday, which was you look at the matchups and we've talked on this podcast as well about the stars in, in the rest of the conference. And I think uh, you mentioned the Heat's formula is defying convention and their coach. I would say the third thing is that in the playoffs – it is hard to play bad players and get away with it. And I think that would be the Heat's best case right now is that they're not going to play anyone in a playoff series, if healthy, which they aren't right now, which is kind of amazing. Look at what they got out of Derek Jones last night. Um, would, again, taping this on a Thursday, played the Pacers last night, and Derek Jones started uh, for Miami. But you, you look at their eight-man rotation, their nine-man rotation, even a 10-man rotation, if they're healthy, they're all, at the very least, NBA-quality players. And that is more than you can say for a team like Washington, where they're just throwing guys off the bench that, frankly, aren't any good. And so I think you're, you're making a depth argument, but that's the opposite argument you'd make for any team in the playoffs. The playoffs are, it's about stars. It's about, you know, the, the, the quality performances you get on the road, you know, in road game fours or road game sixes or whatever, where you need someone to step up. And I just don't think that there are enough of those players that are kind of as battle tested or as have the ability to summon a performance in those kinds of games compared to a team like Washington that's below them in the standings right now, or even a team like Milwaukee that has Giannis on it. I just don't think that Miami has enough of those quality players that you, when all else is failing, and again, and I've taken a lot of stick for my, my assessments of Dwayne Wade, but where we kind of left off the heat when we stopped doing the radio show was Dwayne Wade in that Charlotte series when game six, when things were going really poorly, they turned to him and he delivered. I don't think the heat have anyone like that. Well, I, I don't know that they do at this point. And again, it's it's changed so much because we thought it might be Whiteside, um, and it doesn't appear that they're viewing him as a go-to option if they're not keeping him on the floor at the end of games. I know he's played at the end of games the last couple, but you know his post-up percentages have gone down, not up, in terms of where he is right now. And so I don't know that that's an end-of-game option. We talk about Dragic and you know just trying to hold the line with him, and so you're not expecting 
another step up. I, you know, you're right about the playoffs. I mean, typically, you know, Eric Spolster has gone to a nine-man rotation in the playoffs. I mean, if you look, I mean, sometimes it's been eight, sometimes it's been ten, but but typically about nine. And and so, you know, with this team, he's going to leave good players out of the rotation. They're just not going to play, and they don't help you when they're not playing. Um, you know, we talk about Cleveland right now. And Cleveland's bench has been better than its starting lineup. Um, that group with, you know, LeBron James is basically flat as in terms of his plus minus this year, which is remarkable considering that if you look at the, you know, the previous three years in Cleveland, they were a disaster when he wasn't on the floor. The only reason Cleveland is even 26 and 14 at this stage is because the, the bench has played as well as it's played. And, you know, with Corver and with Dwayne and has and with Jeff ma- Green and with Jeff coming. Well, Jeff Green, who, who's playing on a, on a on a what that they have the weirdest stru- salary structure in the league. They've got Dwayne and Jeff Green playing what for a combined four million dollars, and and they've got other guys, you know, making twenty plus, uh, who aren't playing as well. But you take a look at their starting lineup. I mean, you know, Jay Crowder has not been consistently uh, has not been consistently good, and J.R. Smith has been pretty bad this year, and and yet Cleveland's is going to rely, you know, you say, can Cleveland win a championship or get to the Eastern Conference Finals? If they're doing it this way, they're relying as much on their bench. Uh, they would be the only other team in the Eastern Conference that I look at that would I would say uh, would be as reliant on its bench in the postseason as the Heat. You mentioned the Wizards; their bench is slightly improved from last year, but that was really their downfall last year. Um, you know, the Bucks are still sort of developing in in that place. You know, the Boston, uh, you know, they're playing their rookies such heavy minutes. It's at this point, and they found a couple of pieces for their bench, but they're certainly thinned out from where they were last year. When you take a look at, you know, no Bradley, you know, and, and no Crowder, two guys in their starting lineup, it's 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 adjusted uh, things for them. Um, the Raptors bench has gotten much younger, and it, it's actually playing at a higher level than it did last year. But really, the Raptors, we, we've, you know, you know what that's going to come down to is 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 you know, DeRozan has taken the, another step, but is is Kyle Lowry going to make? you know, going to have a playoff postseason where he makes his threes because that hasn't happened a lot. Um, and particularly two years ago, uh, obviously, we remember that playoff series against the Heat. So, yeah, the Heat are reliant. Uh, we talk about defying convention. They're defying convention in every conceivable way. They're defying convention in terms of playing two bigs together now, which most teams are not doing. They're defying convention in terms of having sort of these mid-level, uh, not, higher than mid-level exception, but mid-range type contracts. Uh, they're defying conception, uh, convention in terms of not having a go-to guy, and they're defying uh, convention in terms of being heavily reliant on guys coming off the bench. And so they, they are unlike, as you mentioned, any other team in the NBA. And I wonder, and, and this is, I guess, a high point to end this on, uh, are, we, are we underrating their chances simply because we have not seen a lot of teams like this? And we haven't even seen a lot of teams like this with the Heat. This is a totally different te- te- team in terms of construction from any team that Pat Riley has coached in Miami, uh, and from any team that that Eric Spolster has coached in Miami, and that's something that I hadn't considered that that I'm not giving them en- enough of a chance. Now I think there are other indicators beyond just convention, where you know obviously if you're getting outscored through 41 games, then you're probably not going to be a team that's going to compete for a championship. But I I am willing to concede that I just I don't give them a chance because of the various factors that are going on with the roster, with the lack of a star, and perhaps I should give them more of a chance because just because things haven't been done before doesn't mean that they can't happen. And and we've seen this happen in, in a variety of sports in a variety of ways, and I've always kind of prided myself on being someone who isn't beholden to convention, but it's a lot to ask for from, from a Heat team that uh, just doesn't have that 
signature talent. Even if if it was the same team with Giannis, if it was the same team with Embiid, if it was the same team with with even if we're talking about young players, right? Not, not players that have you know taken teams to championships. Even if it was a young version of what we're talking about, I would feel more comfortable. But um, I I think it is asking a lot for them to defy convention in quite this way. Um, I could see a first round series win, which to me would be a damn miracle. If, if this team won a playoff series, I would say that's season that's mission accomplished right that's achieving beyond your wildest expectations when again you just look at the names on a sheet and and i think that's that's how i think a lot of nba i think if if you asked your average nba fan the heat of the four seed how are they doing it i think they're just totally confused and that's when you turn to coaching right that's that's why eric spolstra gets so much credit around the league they're 24 and 17 without that quality player that obviously the heat fans know that there's more there because they watch them every night but um it's it's quite a lot to defy in order for this to happen and remember uh the first big three team won what 52 games right and this team is on pace to win 48 uh, with, without Dwayne, without LeBron, without Chris Bosh. Now, that team uh, was woefully uh, understaffed beyond those top three. You take a look at, you know, I think Joel Anthony was fifth on that team in minutes uh, that year. And, and, I, and James I have, Jones I have got the Heat winning, his... winning 58 in year one. Oh, I'm sorry. It was 58. That's yeah. right. Okay. So they, they did win 58. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I think you take a look at, at, at what they're doing. I think, would you say a first round uh, win would would be a miracle. I, I think you have to take a look at, at where they finish. If, if let's say they get the four seed, mm-hmm. um, that implies finishing ahead of Washington most likely. Right. Because yeah. uh, I mean, I think we're assuming, uh, I mean, I, I'm a little surprised the Celtics have, have maintained what they've maintained being as reliant on, you know, one rookie in, uh, in Jason Tatum and another rookie, uh, not, and a second year player in Jalen Brown. Um, and, and again, with their sort of shuffling depth that they had from last year, but, but the, the heat are not going to catch, uh, the Celtics. I wouldn't believe in though, even though the Heat have played well against the Celtics this year. The Raptors, uh, when Lowry's healthy, you anticipate they would finish ahead of the Heat. And, and obviously, I think the Cavaliers, uh, even though they go seem to go through these lulls in every season and they're not good defensively, uh, that that they're going to finish with enough wins to finish ahead of the Heat. So you would you would assume if the Heat gets the four, uh, that they're drawing a Washington or a Milwaukee in the first round. And in that case. It's going to come back to the same thing. You know, does the Heat's, you know, sort of cohesion, depth, uh, you know, and, 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 and sort of overall intensity, does that overcome the fact that, the guy, that, that there's a guy on the other team, uh, and in the case of Washington, too, uh, that may be better than anybody on the Heat's roster? And, and in that case, you know, would the Heat, even as a four seed, be an underdog against the Wizards? Probably. Yes. Um, yeah. And, and, and would they be an underdog against Milwaukee? No. You don't think so? I think they. I think they might be. Um, I think again, it depends. And the Bledsoe trade has sort of had mixed reviews for for Milwaukee so far. Um, I, I still think Milwaukee may make a trade to to sort of shore up their front court a little bit. But uh, yeah, I think certainly. I, I think. Uh, I think. I think the the team in that series who had home court would mm-hmm. be favored. Okay. Okay, and then they're about and then the same. And then the Pistons, uh, you know, which, you know, they got off to the hot start and they've come back to earth a little bit, or the Pacers. Uh, so, you know, I, I would give the Heat a chance in any of those series, but I, against Washington, they would be an underdog. And, um, you know, it would be a great achievement, but it gets back to all the issues we've talked about on the podcast. Is that enough for an organization that is it enough to be fun and exciting to watch for an organization that's that has sort of you know, made it a championship, had a championship robust mentality 
through large part of the Riley era. And that, that's one of the things to watch going forward. All right, that'll do it for the the first edition, the inaugural edition of the Five Reasons podcast. If you want to follow us on Twitter, we are at Chris Whittingham and at Ethan J. Skolnick. Uh, we're working on a variety of podcasting platforms to get this on. So if you listen to Apple Podcasts or Google Play or uh, Stitcher, whatever the case may be, we're working on getting it on every kind of platform. And uh, stay tuned and hit that subscribe button. We appreciate you joining us here on the Five Reasons podcast. Wilson, you sent the game-winning email at the buzzer, avoiding a 4.55 meeting on everyone's calendar. How did you do it? I got a huge assist from Grammarly, an AI writing partner that helped me make my point. And it works everywhere I write. Summarizing a doc only took one click. When everyone uses Grammarly, everything just makes sense. Go to Grammarly.com slash podcast to download it for free. That's Grammarly.com slash podcast. Easier said, done.